sacks with grain. But he also gave secret instructions to return each brother's payment at the top of his sack. He also gave them supplies for their journey home. So the brothers loaded their donkeys with the grain and headed for home. But when they stopped for the night, and one of them opened his sack to get grain for his donkey, he found his money in the top of his sack. Look, he exclaimed to his brothers, my money has been returned. It's here in my sack. Then their hearts sank. Trembling, they said to each other, what has God done to us? When the brothers came to their father, Jacob, in the land of Cana, they told him everything that had happened to them. The man who was governor of the land spoke very harshly to us. They told him he accused us of being spies scouting the land. But we said, we are honest men, not spies. We are 12 brothers, sons of one father. One brother is no longer with us, and the youngest is at home with our father in the land of Cana. Then the man who is governor of the land told us, this is how I will find out if you're honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take grain for your starving families and go on home. But you must bring back your youngest brother back to me. Then I will know that you are honest men and not spies. Then I will give back your brother and you may trade freely in the land. As they emptied out their sacks, there in each man's sack was a bag of money. He paid for the grain. The brothers and their fathers were terrified when they saw the bags of money. Jacob exclaimed, you are robbing me of my children. Joseph is gone. Simeon is gone, and now you want to take Benjamin too? Everything is going against me. Then Reuben said to his fathers, You may kill my two sons if I don't bring Benjamin back to you. I will be responsible for him, and I promise to bring him back. But Jacob replied, My son will not go down with you. His brother Joseph is dead, and he is all I have left. If anything should happen to him on your journey, you, should, you would send this grieving white hair man to his grave. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We're thankful. We love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this series. Thank you for this church. Thank you for worship. Thank you for giving us the ability to come back and worship you over and over again through song, through your word, through experiences, Lord. Lord, I just pray that you prepare our hearts, Lord, as we continue to dive into the section of forgiveness and repentance and dealing with a whole bunch of stuff from the past. Lord, I just pray that uh, if there's anyone in here that is dealing with things, that you just speak to them clearly, that you love them, that you care for them, and that you want to be with them, Lord. And I do pray that you just use me. I pray that I say whatever you want me to say, and whatever you don't, that I don't. We thank you again for your word. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have a seat. So that sounds like an odd place to start if you weren't here last week or the last couple of weeks. All of a sudden, Joseph ordered something. But just a quick recap for last week, if you weren't here. Last week, we, we took a look at uh, the time when about 27 years later, after uh, everything that has happened, uh, if you remember, Joseph's brothers beat him up, sold him into slavery. They were jealous because their dad, Jacob, loved him more than them. And so they sold him into slavery. Then he was sold again into slavery. He ended up in Egypt in Potiphar's home, who was like the head of the secret service, if you will, and he did pretty well there, worked his way up. His uh, Potiphar's wife accused him of rape. He was thrown into prison. Um, he was in prison for quite a while, became a lead prisoner in there, helping other people. Year, a couple years passed by. There's uh, the cupbearer and the, the baker. They get thrown in from Pharaoh into the prison, and he helps them out, and then one of them promises not to forget him. And then two years later, he finally is... Remembered 
And then here he is, he's second in command and he's, he, had this, he interpreted this dream for Pharaoh and that God gave him to be able to save the land, save the country. And then last week, things have gone from bad and good from the land to bad. Seven years of great prosperity and now the famine. And last week we talked about all of a sudden, right there in front of Joseph's eyes, were his brothers. And if you remember last week, the shock, even if you prepare yourself for something, the shock of seeing those who did something so terrible to you, here they are right in front of them. And the funny thing is, is they didn't recognize him. And we talked about, he looked like an Egyptian. He, Joseph did. And, and the other reason is because the brothers couldn't even imagine. They assumed he was dead. Maybe thought he was a slave. They can't even imagine that the second in command of the world at this time is their brother. So here we are. So here we are. Right here in this, in this passage Joseph sends his brothers away. He, he leaves Simeon locked up in prison. He bounds them right in front of him. He sends them on their way. And the whole goal here is Joseph is now testing and working through the character of his brothers. He's trying to see if they are really repentant. He's trying to see who they are now. What kind of men are they now? Because he cares so deeply for them. Last week we talked about the difference uh, or how you can measure if you've forgiven someone. If you truly have forgiven someone a good indicator is, do you care for their well-being after you forgive them? Which is sometimes, I think, even more difficult to do. Yeah, I forgive you, now move on. So here we are. We're in this, in this, this place where he sends him back home to go see if his little brother is, how his little brother is doing and how his dad is doing. And there's two main things I just want to say up front in this section of Scripture that I, I want to cover. Hopefully at the end when we're done, that we'll cover this. And there's two ways that we can allow the past to make us blind to the present and the future of what God is doing. So there's two ways that, that, I, that I found in this section of Genesis 42. That we can allow the past to blind us to what God is doing now and what he'll do in the future. And up front I'll tell you, the first one is sin. Sin that is not dealt with has this ability to rob us of our hope and our peace currently and in our future. So sin that's not dealt with pushes us back into hiding. It, it gives us a warped view of everything, including, including what God is doing in our lives. We mistake something that is good for something that is bad. And we'll go through that a little bit more. And then the other one is uh, the way that our past can blind us is if from past circumstances, if, if we stay in the hurt and the loss of a past circumstance, um, that really reveals what's going on in our life currently. And we'll go through that and unpack that a little bit. But up front, I just want to give you an example, a couple of examples of how the first one is, tr- is true about if we, don't, if we have something that is hidden in our lives, we totally mistake God and what he's doing in our lives. So here's an example. I remember whenever uh, I was a, a, stu- a senior in high school and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do when I grew up and I became very self-centered, very self-focused, I didn't care. I just, whatever God's will is, and then God's will is not to be mean, but sometimes when you're so focused on yourself, you just become mean. Maybe that's just me, but I was mean. And uh, I remember one time my younger brother who, who, was, who, who, who wanted to help me out, and it was so simple. And I remember clear as day, 
is I came home from, uh, from work and there all of my clothes that was in, in, in the laundry basket was put away. And I got mad. Who would do such a thing? So then I accused my brother. What are you doing going through my stuff? He's like, I just put it away for you because you've been stressed out. I said, don't touch my stuff. On and on and on and on. He said, fine. He put it all back in the laundry basket and then threw it outside. He said, do it yourself. See, he was genuinely being kind to me. He was genuinely just helping me out. And I couldn't see that it was a blessing. I accused him of doing something wrong. Have you ever been there? Someone's done something nice to you and you're like, what are you doing? Some of you who have teenage kids at home and you try to help them out and it's a struggle because what are you doing? You're like, go away, you know, but, but here it is here unfolding right before our eyes is Joseph is so desperately trying just to love his brothers back. And, and last week we talked about forgiveness and, and some of you shared with me about what's going on. A lot of you, and, and even in my own life. And I just want to make it clear that forgiveness doesn't mean that what the person did to you was right or wrong or indifferent. It does mean they did something wrong. So when you forgive someone, you're not letting them off the hook of what they've done. You're just simply forgiving them for the restoration. Feelings. You still have feelings. If you wait until you feel like forgiving someone, you won't. Right? Or if you wait to forgive someone once they ask for it, you won't. You just have to choose to forgive them. And then this journey... And then dealing with the sin is where we are picking up with what Joseph did. So again, Joseph is trying to bless them. Joseph gave them what they needed on their journey home, it says. And he was looking after their well-being. Even before they actually apologized, you realize they haven't even said, they don't even know it's Joseph yet. They haven't even apologized. They haven't even came forward and said, we, we, we can't even ask for forgiveness. We're totally wrong. But they're realizing what's taking place. And what it is, is God takes us on, on this journey sometimes for reconciliation to bring us together. See, what it was is he was giving them two parts. He was, first, Joseph was giving them what they could see eventually, but they didn't notice it. The forgiveness, they gave, he gave them their money back there. And then he also gives them what they cannot see. And we'll get there in a minute. In verse 27, and that's where we'll pick up. It says, but then they stopped, the brothers, they stopped for the night. And one of them opened the sack of grain for his donkey. He found his money in the top of the sack. And that's the money that, he, that they were supposed to pay for all the grain. And, and he says, look, he exclaimed to his brothers, my money has been returned. It's here in my sack. Then their hearts sank. Well, first of all, anytime that I find money in my pocket, I don't go, man, that's a bummer. Like, man, who, who did I rob? I, I don't consider that. But that's what they, that's what they were doing. They're like, oh, our money is back. Like, who did it? First of all, Joseph accused us of being spies. Or the, the, the Egyptians accused us of being spies. And here now they're going to accuse us of being thieves. But then they go on and, and, and it says, Then their hearts sank, trembling. They said to each other, What has God done to us? What has God done to us? It's interesting, God has done something to them, but they're totally missing it. They're assuming that God is just punishing them. And God is saying, all right, first of all, you're spies and now you're thieves. I'm going to get back for you all the bad that you've done. It's interesting, this word is Elohim. It's a word that, in Hebrew for God. And, and one, of the, one of the sentence structures or what it means for God is the judge. And I just imagine 
that they're saying, what has God judging us for? What is he doing to us? And, and it's also interesting, too, that uh, they are working through their sin now. They're assuming that because they haven't dealt with the sin, there's no hope. All they can see is their sin and not the blessing. Joseph totally gave them everything that they needed for their little community in Cana, plus their money back, upward being judged. And this is, this is actually leading to their perception of who God is. And, and then the other thing that I was trying to work out this week is, which brother found it? And I would just imagine if I'm in the group of brothers or close friends and we're traveling along and someone opens it up and then they find the money in there, who put the money in here? Which one of you guys played a trick? Who's doing this to me? Blaming someone else. But they're scared. And what they're doing is that they're seeing is uh, they, they can't see the blessing because they haven't dealt with what's going on in their heart. Their our heart is so clouded with sin that they can't move beyond that. Sometimes we allow, and this is my experience, sometimes we allow the voices of doubt, mistakes, sins in our past to overshadow what Christ has done and is doing in our life. So much so that we act like these brothers that when we received a blessing, we assume that it's something that we don't, it's something bad. Again, going back to all the examples you can probably think of, think of a time whenever you did something kind for someone and they accuse you of doing something wrong and something's going on. Verse 29, it says, when the brothers came to their father, Jacob, in the land of Cana, they told him everything that had happened. Well, almost everything that had happened. And here's the point with the brothers' restorations. They told the truth, but yet there was some hint of lying. They, they, they were good at lying. They just, they just lied. Think about this burden that they had now with their father, this sin that they had with their father. First of all, in the tra- when they were traveling back home, they, had sin- they were dealing with the sin of what they did to Joseph, assuming that God's punishing, punishing them for this. But here they're in front of their father. Now, that, this is a completely different sin. It's tied together. For the last 27 years, they have allowed their father to think that their younger brother has been killed by a wild beast. So here they are. They're coming home and they're telling Jacob everything except for the main part of what they've done. And that's been my experience in my own life and other people's life, being a pastor, just being a friend, just being a human being, that sometimes people try to confess their sin in bits and pieces, dancing around the main issue, hoping for some relief, but not full relief. See, at this point, what total repentance, totally asking for forgiveness the brother should have came home and said, look, we are so guilty. This is the whole thing. And also, by the way, 27 years ago, we know that we told you that our younger brother died. Your favorite died. But really what happened is we sold him into slavery. But they didn't. They were just dancing around what was going on. They were trying to just remedy what it looked like, what it felt like, instead of the actual situation and the pain. And I think uh, we love the big moment of trans transformation. You know, I, I'm a sucker for, for movies, especially sports movies, where there's rags of riches, this big transformation, the, 
the, the nobody, the last person on the bench makes the big play. Uh, someone's completely redeemed. I love those big transformation stories. Uh, but my experience truly is transformation takes place in baby steps. Sometimes there's big ones. And some, some of you have a testimony where it's been a complete, huge turnaround. And all of that is true. But what I've seen is the, in the process of the transformation, it's little baby steps. The little spots of change in someone's life. Not the big ones, not the outward ones where everyone sees, but it's the small ones. And I wrote down a couple that I've just seen in, uh, in my own life, just walking with Christ. Big transformation is accepting Christ right there on the spot. I remember when I was young, I accepted Christ. It was great. Probably shared the story that I accepted Christ initially when I was in second grade because I wanted a sticker on my VBS tag. So that's a good way to accept Christ. And, and every VBS thereafter all summer long, I think my mom was trying to get rid of us. As, uh, I kept getting another sticker because I liked stickers. And that's funny and all, but then, you know, somewhere in junior high, high school, right there at that point is whenever I was like, oh, this is what it means to follow Christ. And you'd see a a transformation in the change in life. But then what I've realized, too, is at what point in my life did I just start reading the Bible on my own? At night, quietly to myself, or early in the morning, where no one else would see that except for me and the Lord. That is the baby steps that has the huge implications in our walk with Christ. Um, yeah, some of you have shared about uh, doing the devotion uh, with your spouse. And, and uh, I won't say who, but more than one came and said, Hey, you know, this is the first time in so many years that we've been married that we've actually done a devotion together as husband and wife. You know, those are the little transformations, the little changes that take place that no one else sees that has the huge impact of what's going on. And this is what the brothers are missing, is they're dancing around what is really going on to admit sin. See, and and at the heart of it, the brothers were afraid of grace. And I think sometimes we are too. We're afraid of grace because we know, if we're Christians at least, accepted Jesus as their savior, we know that grace desires a change in our life. And sometimes we're scared that if we receive this grace, then we also have to give it out. And sometimes we fool ourselves in thinking we don't deserve it, which we don't, but God gives it freely. When there's something weighing us down, when the sin is weighing us down, we only see the weight of the sin. And grace is scary because, again, sometimes we don't want to change. So this is what we're seeing in verse 30. And it says, and they give a recap of what's going on. They said, the man who is governor, some translation, it says, Lord of the land spoke very harshly to us. They told them they accused us of being scouts for the land, but we said we're honest men, not spies. We're 12 brothers, sons of one father. And that's a big deal at that time in the, in the Jewish tradition is you could have be brothers of different moms, mothers, but if you had one father, there was a patriarch, like we are one family, we are united. That's what we told them. One brother is no longer with us, so they're admitting something that is wrong. And our youngest one is at home, Benjamin, with our father in the land of Cana. Then the man who's governor of the land told us, this is how I will find out. And they give the whole uh, rundown of what Joseph did. Threw, threw him in jail for three days and they go through it. And then here's the break, breaking point. Verse 34. But you must bring your youngest brother back to me. Then I will know that you're honest men. So on this journey, it was probably five, six, seven days journey back home. I would only imagine the conversation that the brothers were having at this time. 
What are we going to do to tell dad that we have to bring Benjamin back? Dad wouldn't even let Benjamin come with us initially because he's so scared that he's going to lose him too. He's totally been a helicopter parent. Like he's totally stressing out. And now the only way we can get our other brother back, Simeon, is if we bring our younger brother back. How are we going to convince dad that we need our younger brother? Now remember, Benjamin is the youngest brother of all, full blood brother of Joseph. And uh, Benjamin's mom, Joseph's mom, died in childbirth to Benjamin. So here, here it is. Joseph's gone. So how are we going to convince dad to let us take him? Like, have you ever gone into a situation, leading up to a situation, where you knew that you were going to have to ask for something that the other person was going to say no already? There's no way dad's going to let this fly. There's no way mom's going to let this happen. There's no way. Like all of the creative conversation that you would have in order to say, dad, we just got to bring him. Like we super duper promise. And I know I say duper a lot, but we super promise that we'll, we'll take good care of him. This whole conversation, because also the guilt that they have felt for the last 27 years, knowing what they did to Joseph and seeing their dad day after day, after day, after day, after day, sad and heartbroken over the loss of his son. So now they, now they break it to him. We have to bring them back. And as they're doing that in verse 35, it says, as they emptied out their sacks, there in each man's sacks was the bag of money he had paid for the grain. The brothers and their fathers were terrified when they saw the bags of money. So on this journey, originally they opened up one back, a bag of grain to feed the donkeys and, and, and take a little bit, and they saw the money. Now when they get home, they're opening up all the bags and all the grains, and all of the money's there. And they all freak out. And it doesn't, it does a little bit go in here, but can you imagine also the thought process of who, who snuck that money? Who didn't pay it? And now when they open it up, all the money is there, and they're scared. Originally, when the brothers had, had found only the one money, they thought, there has to be someone that's sneaking around in here. And now it looks like all of them. And this is what Jacob says. And it's a very profound statement. And I think it really looks into how uh, being a parent, um, you can cause so much distress within your family by this. And it says this, verse 36. Jacob exclaimed, you are robbing me of my children. Joseph is gone, Simeon is gone, and now you want to take Benjamin too? Everything is going against me. This is what Jacob says. And why it's so interesting is he is saying to his own children, you are robbing me of my children. He's blaming his children of robbing him of his children, which doesn't make sense. But, but notice this whole, in, in the whole, it's taking away the individuality of each child. And here, I'll give you an example. And, and I can only speak for men and husbands, so forgive me, ladies and moms, and you guys are smarter anyway. So, But you know whenever you do something dumb as a guy and you get lumped in together with the kids and the animals and everything else, right? Like there's a mess in the backyard and what did you guys do? I just got here. Don't, don't, don't call me a, I'm not even a kid. Like, like I, I can't, 
I can't express that enough, but you know what I'm saying is, is like, I, I, but it's not fair. Like that is a, a theme that runs in my mind. You guys are doing, uh, yes. Even at work, whenever you're at work and you're in a, in a, in, in a small group or whatever it is, small team, and someone makes a dumb mistake in the team. And then your manager director comes in and says, you guys. And you're like, I was on vacation. Like, you know, all these things. But what it is doing is it's really easy to blame the lot, the group, than individually dealing with what's going on. You know, whenever people make the statements, and you probably made the statements, and I have, they say that, well, who is they? It's very vague. When you blame and when you shift and when you quote, when you, when you point to a group, you're not really dealing with the individual. And that's what he's doing here. And that's what we can do as parents is blame the whole group. Of what's going on. Blame all three of your children in my case. Or however many children. Or or with your team. Blame your whole team in your job. Because you don't really want to deal with the individual. You just want to give a a broad blanket to cover what's going on. And what Jacob is doing here is he said. You are robbing me of my children. Children you are robbing me of you. Is what he's saying. But actually what he's saying is. You as a collective group has taken away Joseph. Has taken away Simeon. And now you want to take away Benjamin. How would those other brothers feel? Well, aren't we important too? Don't, aren't we individual too? Don't we make a difference? When those broad statements are made, we don't like to deal with the individual issues because that means we have to come face to face with one person to confront someone. I know some people in here probably really super love confrontation. Like, oh boy, I can't really. I actually haven't met anyone who likes that, but like, boy, I can't wait for it. Some of you are better than others. But for some... It's, you have to spend the whole day talking yourself up for this confrontation. And this, and this is showing that Jacob has not dealt with any of the confrontation that he needed to do. We don't have much time, but going back through it, you, we see over and over again that he was a very passive father that did not deal with sin on an individual level, and he just blanketed it. He punished everyone for the lot instead of loving them individually where they needed it. And thankfully, we have the true example of what Christ does. He loves us as a family, but yet he knows us by name. And isn't that beautiful? To be to the, the, the God of the universe, the God who created everything, loves us as a family, we use that language, but yet knows the number of hairs on our head. So it's both and. It's covering the, the broad and the individual for what they need. Again, as a parent, you, you've probably noticed that you've had to parent your different children differently. Some you just give them the look and they're good. Some you, you have to chase them throughout the house. Some you wish they just, you know, just listen once. Same with your teammates uh, at your uh, sports team. Uh, if you're a coach, sometimes you have, to, you have to really get into someone's face and that motivates them. Some, if you do that, they'll cry and they won't be any good. You just have to know where they're at. Take the time to know them individually to be able to deal when something is big. You already know their personality. And it appears here, and I don't want to read too much into it, that Jacob just treated his children with a blanket statement and didn't know them individually. And they lost that individual connection with Jacob. And we see how Jacob is dealing with this. He's, he's using that term. See, and, and again, God calls us by name. He knows us individually. Which is, which is a very contrast. Jacob and Joseph is very... A very wide contrast. I know that uh, the past couple of weeks we've looked at how 
Joseph and Jesus are similar, some of the similarities in your life groups. You've been discussing that a little bit. But here, just a quick moment. The contrast between Joseph and his dad is wild. Jacob is living in the past. He's living in the hurt. He's saying, oh, poor me. Where the brothers, the first thing that they're, they're dealing with in this chapter is they're dealing with sin they haven't done. Their sin has, has, has polluted their view of what God's blessing is so much because they haven't dealt with the sin. They're just living in that. And here, Jacob has not dealt with the pain and the hurt. He's just sitting in the poor me. Where Joseph, by example, in contrast, a lot worse has happened to him. And yet, each time Joseph was, was brought out of prison, was brought out of the pit, was brought out of all of that, he never blamed anyone. That doesn't mean it wasn't hurtful. He wasn't scared. It doesn't bother him. He dealt with it. At no point did he ever say, oh, poor me. And this whole time, Jacob is just living in the past and the hurt. Joseph, again, not once points to his past as something bad that God had done to them. He's always recognized that Christ. In the next couple of weeks, we'll see the, the statement, but God, but God, but God, again. And and Jacob is living in the past and the hurt, and he can't see beyond that. And I think that robs us today. And I would even suggest that the way that we deal with our hurts and our past and bad situations from long ago, if not dealt with properly, really distorts our view of Christ. Because we take away our view of his sovereignty of him being in control. Then Reuben makes this pact with him, and we'll get back to that. He says, you know what, Dad? If I don't bring him back, you can kill my two sons. You can kill your two grandchildren if I don't bring back your son. But Jacob replied in verse 38, my son will not go down with you. His brother Joseph is dead, and he is all I have left. If anything should happen to him on your journey, you would send this grieving white-haired man to his grave. The way Jacob responds is the way that Christians can sometimes respond to a bad experience. It's the moment in the story of the movie where we're all looking at it from the audience or the moment when we're reading a book where we could see, oh, if you just let them go, just it'll be okay. It seems bad, but it'll be all right. And the story is unfolding right before our eyes with that. Don't give up is sometimes what we say when we're reading this, even though we know what's going to happen or the movie's unfolding. You see the characteristic, the character stuck in the hurt in the past. And we get caught up in what has taken place and we stop moving forward. That's what I see with Jacob here. 27 years, I just imagine on replay all the bad that's happened. The loss of Joseph, the loss of his favorite wife, and just and the downturn of his whole family, this whole <clears throat> Israelite community is just on this downward spiral. Every day he's playing in his mind. And I'm only suggesting that because I've been there where I just play, replay the bad situation in my life every day over and over and over and over and over and over again. And not being able to move and step forward and move on. And the way that it robs me of what God is blessing me today. So he's not able to move on beyond that. He's not able to see the blessing of someone else because his heart is in a position where he only sees it. I like what F.B. Meyer wrote. He said... A guilty conscience can misinterpret the kindest of gifts, the mercies which God sends to us. I would also add, if we're stuck in the past of the hurts and the pains and the hiccups, then we won't be able to see that grace and mercy. So here again, Joseph is trying to bless his brothers. 
see where they're at. Try to restore them. And here's Jacob, his dad, sitting at home. And he can't see beyond his loss. And that sounds good and all, but what does it mean for us? What is the steps that we can take from this? If we read through this, what, it, what, what is it saying for us? The first one is, is deal with the sin in your life. I say it's so simple. It's simple, but it's hard. I know that. Don't let the sin, the unconfessed sin, uh, ruin, distort your view of what God is doing in your life. He wants that restoration there. Yeah, there's punishment for sin. There's consequences, but yet there's grace and forgiveness. So again, this is the moment wherever I ask you to consider someone that you've wronged and go immediately and ask for forgiveness. And then maybe even though that person isn't alive or you can't even come into contact, but forgiveness starts with your heart. And if you think about it in the, in the big view of things, where do you receive God's grace and forgiveness? What do we always tell our children? In our hearts. It doesn't have to be face to face. Some of you, I wouldn't recommend uh, going to the person face-to-face to ask for forgiveness. It's a bad, it's unhealthy, it's not a safe environment to do that. But yet, forgiveness can still take place in your heart. And or asking for forgiveness. But second, and maybe this is probably something that uh, a lot of us can struggle with, is not reliving the bad. I'm not saying totally forget about it, you won't. I, I sometimes wonder and ask and pray and think, man, God, if you could... If there was just a way that you could just forgive, not only forgive my sins, but make a way that I could never remember them again, it seems like that would be so much easier. But the reality is, is we get to hold on to that while we're still here on earth to see how good God is, to see how graceful and merciful he is in our lives. So it's not about getting beaten up over your past. It's dealing with your past to identify that, yes, you were hurt. Yes, it was wrong. But yet see that God is not done with you yet. You're not disqualified from the hurt from somebody else or the hurt that you caused somebody else. And here we're left in the story where Jacob says, nope, you can't take them. Now imagine if you're the brothers, what are we going to do? If the only way we can get our other brother back is to go and bring our younger brother, what are we going to do? And even, you know, whenever you're in this fog and in this funk, you dream up the worst case scenarios. I would imagine that the brothers are saying, he's the second in command, this guy, this governor. He could send an army after us. We gotta do it. So we'll see how the brothers deal with it next week. But before we close and we pray and we have communion, I just just wanna remind us that Forgiveness is a choice. And sometimes, at least in my experience, I may have forgiven someone long ago, but when all those feelings come back up again from another, I see a photo of another memory, I have to forgive them all over again in my heart just for the sake of moving forward. And for anyone who is, who is dealing with uh, a situation where you're, the hurt and the pain is still moving forward, to move forward is a difficult one. Choose to move forward. Maybe God won't reveal why that situation happened to you. But yet know and be reassured he was there with you and he's with you now. And that's the contrast that we'll see as we continue on in our series of how God deals with the brothers, how God deals with Jacob, and how God deals with Joseph. Just the way that he deals with us. Grace and mercy. We just need to receive it. So we're going to have a couple of songs and we're going to take communion. Um, please go and take a bread and a, and a cup during the next few songs. We're going to take it all together again. Um, so just, just wait and grab it.
Um, but again, if there's anything that's going on, Paul, Paul describes that if you have any barrens to get somebody to, to deal with that, I suggest that you can. And if they're not here, then don't do it here. Save a note and do it right away. Forgiveness is such a beautiful tool that we can give somebody else to forgive. So let's pray. God, we're so thankful for who you are and what you're doing, Lord. Lord, as we spend the next couple of songs going through worshiping you, remind us of how good you are. Sometimes we get uh, far off from that and we get so stuck in our, our situation, our circumstances, Lord. And Lord, if there's anyone that we need to forgive, help us forgive right now. Lord, if there's anyone that we need to ask for forgiveness, give this boldness to do so. Lord, if there's anyone in here that is dealing with past hurt, pains, and hiccups that have not moved forward yet, I just pray today is the day. Acknowledging that what happened is very real and the feelings and experiences is very real. But yet you are God. Yet you are good. That you are sovereign. Lord, as we prepare to take communion after a few songs, Lord, speak to us, Lord. Let us be reminded of what you did on the cross in order for all of this to be true. In order for all of the forgiveness, the grace, and mercy to be experienced, Lord. Lord, it is such a privilege and a pleasure to sit and listen and hear you, Lord. And I think sometimes we just rush through. Forgive us for that, Lord. But as we just take these next couple of songs, let us not only worship you, but reflect on your goodness, your grace, grace, and how much you love us. We ask these things in your precious son's name. Amen.